so what Decentraland is doing is they're trying to create a virtual world, kind of like the Oasis in Ready Player One for anybody who's seen that, where with a ownership of the land in that world recorded as non-fungible tokens on the Ethereum blockchain. So the big idea is it's going to be a metaverse that people are able to enter either through a web browser or eventually in VR. And they're going to be able to travel around this world and engage in all sorts of experiences and build things and play games and, and you know, take classes. But the size of the world is kind of artificially scarce in the way that Bitcoin is artificially scarce. There are only 90,000 parcels of land. Each parcel has separate coordinates on a grid, and the ownership of these parcels is recorded on Ethereum. These are Each parcel is a separate, non-fungible token. And so people who believe that this world is going to get developed in the way that a city gets developed, they can buy the land, and they can build whatever they want on it. Um, and the land is, is scarce. And so if you think there's going to be traffic in this world, and that people are going to want to own land in this world. Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. Have you ever thought about the nature of money? It's a bit odd, really. A couple pieces of paper, and that buys you what you need. But it's not really something. It's completely made up. Where does money come from? Why does it matter to us? This is what we're looking into today. We're diving deep into the financial worlds of Bitcoin, blockchain, and the future of both cryptocurrency and governance. Today, we've got Travis Share on the program. Travis leads venture capital and new crypto asset investing over at Digital Currency Group, the largest blockchain investment group in the world, with a mission to accelerate a development of a better financial system. They're easily the most prolific investor when it comes to blockchain startups, having invested in over 130 different companies, including Coinbase, Blockchain, Ledger, Ripple. They've also invested in Bitcoin, Decentraland, Ethereum Classic, and Zcash. They're not a traditional venture fund. They're not a crypto hedge fund. They build out the crypto ecosystem. They also own Coindesk, the leading independent source of blockchain news, and some trading platforms. In today's episode, we dive deep into blockchain and discuss the future of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, why blockchain builds perfectly upon virtual reality, how non-governmental money will impact society, the big problem with custody and control when it comes to money, why we're still a few years off from widespread crypto adoption, and how Travis thinks we can rewrite democracy. And now without further ado, I give you Travis Share. Except for one more little ado, I want to apologize. Throughout the episode, there are some problems with parts of Travis's audio. You can completely understand everything that's said, but sometimes the connection wasn't great. We're working on improving this. Hopefully you guys can tell. We have a new microphone now here, so our audio is sounding a bit better, and we're going to do our best to make sure that you get the best quality episodes from Fringe FM. Don't worry, the episode's great. Travis, he drops a ton of knowledge bombs, and you can understand him throughout, but just wanted to let you know there are a couple hiccups in his audio quality. And now, Travis Share. 
You probably know I'm big on biohacking and trying to make myself the best I can be. That's why I'm excited about what the guys at Neurohacker Collective and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who was previously on the podcast, are doing. They're some of the smartest biohackers on the planet, and their Qualia line of brain-enhancing nootropics make it obvious why. You guys can get 15% off any order, or with a subscription, 50% off and 15% off every future order by going to disruptors.fm slash qualia, that's Q-U-A-L-I-A, and using coupon code DISRUPTORS at Disruptors, we're big on health and biotech. For a reason, it amplifies everything. Disruptors.fm slash qualia. Use coupon code DISRUPTORS. And now, let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. What is money and why is it broken? Ha, that's a great question. So, what is money? Money is a social construct. Money is a means of transferring value that works so long as everybody agrees that it has value. In general, it works pretty well for most of us here in the developing world, but in some places it doesn't work as well. And for some specific uses, it doesn't work terrifically well. One of the reasons it it often doesn't work well is that one of its features is to not just be used to buy goods and services in the short term, but to store value over time. So people do work today and they want to be sure that they can use the proceeds of that labor in the future. And that value can diminish over time if the value of your money decreases. And one reason that happens is because the supply of, of money increases, which decreases its value. That's, that's known as inflation. So that's, that is a big problem in, in many parts of the world. And historically, it's been a huge problem in, in many parts of the world. Hey, Matt here. You may think inflation and runaway inflation is just a problem of developing or problematic countries like Venezuela, or we've had problems with a couple of African countries in the past. Well, it's not. Even in the US, inflation, 1% to 2% every year. That means your money is going less and less far every single year. It's the reason why if you look at home prices 10, 20, 100 years ago, they were way, way cheaper. It's not that we had that many fewer people. It's not that people are making that much more money now. It's not that houses cost that much more money now. It's just inflation. Your money goes less far. And this is a major problem that cryptocurrency is trying to address, the problem of government printing money to solve their problems. They're printing money and taking away yours. Now back to Travis. There, there are other reasons that money doesn't work that well. One is that we rely on people to tell us whether or not we can transfer it. And oftentimes those people take fees when we try and transfer it. So one particular case when, when this is problematic is people try and transfer money all around the world, right? And that relies on a complex web of institutions that we call banks to verify that we have the money we say we want to transfer and that we can do so. And in, in some instances, it can be quite slow and expensive to send money all around the world. So <laughs> that is money. Those are, those are some of the issues that, that we have with it today. And how did you get into this world of cryptocurrency where you seemingly want to reinvent money and a whole lot of other things? Yeah, so my story is, um, you know, I, well, let me, let me take a step back. I think people get into this world of cryptocurrency from a few different angles. Some people get super excited about the political ideas here, right? That you have this form of money that is beyond the reach of government, beyond the control of big incumbent financial institutions and banks. 
some people get super excited because of the technology, right? There are advances here that prevent what are known, what is known as the double spend problem, right? So the ability to create provable scarcity in the digital world, there was no trivial task to, to solve that problem because bits in general can be copy and pasted an infinite number of times. But Bitcoin solves that problem with what's known as proof of work. So, Hey, Matt here. Wanted to dive into a concept that Travis brought up that might not be inherently obvious. So he brought up the double spend problem and proof of work and how Bitcoin solves the double spend problem. Imagine for an instant that you had money. Better yet, let's make it an MP3. Let's say your MP3 is worth a dollar. Well, in the digital era, you're able to send that MP3 to everyone. There's not a single CD that you're sending out to someone. You're not buying record labels. You're sending out that MP3 file. Well, you can spend it over and over and over and over. This is the reason why we've had quite a bit of problem with piracy and the value or perceived value of digital goods going down. How Bitcoin solves this problem is people are putting in work, proof of work, so to speak, by burning energy to be able to show that they have found the unique solution to the next block, the next problem. So blockchain solves this digital scarcity problem by creating a false scarcity where the miners are putting in their own money and resources to prove that they're not malicious actors in the system. They're not allowing double spends people to have not one Bitcoin, but 1,700 Bitcoin. Well, that doesn't work with cryptocurrency. So just think about this like money. When you have a dollar bill, if you try to copy paste it and counterfeit it, you can tell because there's a difference. Well, when it's a digital file, you're not able to tell unless you have someone who's putting their own money on the line to stake that, yes, this is the only version. It's not worth staking your own or burning your own money to say this is something that is, in fact, counterfeit. Because if it costs you more to lie and burn in terms of energy than it does in terms of the amount of value you'd earn from counterfeiting, then there's no point to counterfeit. You can cut counterfeiting out of the equation. That's a, that's a pretty simplified explanation to a technical phenomenon, but that's more or less how both proof of work and proof of stake work. Some people get excited about the technology. Other people get excited about the big economic ideas here, right? I think thinking about the sorts of questions that you raised to kick off the show, what is money and, and how can we make it better fundamentally, right? And so that, it was that third, that third area that really captured my imagination. So I was, um, I was, um, I studied finance in college. Then I went to law school and practiced as a lawyer at a big firm for a few years doing M&A law here in New York City. And I was fairly bored during this. So I started studying some areas of technology to try and find something that was exciting that I could, so I could spend my life doing something that I enjoyed and, and I felt was meaningful. And I, I came across Bitcoin in 2014, which is, you know, medium early. I, I certainly have met many people in the space who, who got in earlier than I did. But I'd say at this point, most of the people in the space got in after I did. And so I read about Bitcoin. I read a book called The Age of Cryptocurrency by Paul Vigna and Michael Casey of the Wall Street Journal and started thinking about what is money and how can we make it better? And so that got me super excited about Bitcoin. So I started personally investing in Bitcoin and, and looking for opportunities to move into the space full time. And in 2015, I joined Digital Currency Group to lead our venture investing. And so I've been doing that for about three years. So I'm pretty well versed in the, in the cryptocurrency space. But for a bit of the episode, I'll play devil's advocate and pretend that I'm a little bit newer to the space. And the first thing I hear when you bring up all of this is the, the competitive regulation, so to speak essentially building something that competes with government. How, how is the space dealing with this and how is this advancing and where do you see us headed in the future? Yeah, great question. So I, I think that what's interesting about Bitcoin is that it is a form of money that is issued by computers and not controlled by any particular individuals. And, and what it does beautifully 
is that it allows folks in places with high inflation and it allows folks um, to, to store their wealth across time. It also allows folks who want to send money internationally to do so instantly with the click of a button without depending on central intermediaries. So I guess it, it is the case that, that Bitcoin is not controlled by any government, but that's kind of part and parcel of what makes it really fascinating technologically. And threatening civilizationally, so to speak. How do we move into a world, do we move into a world where we get beyond governmental money? I, I know you're going to kind of argue that we're there, but we're also kind of not there because the vast majority of people aren't using cryptocurrency frequently. Yeah. So I would say that that over the long term, there's there's a bunch of different ways that we get there. I think that there are challenges right now related to how accessible this technology is to a mass market. There are challenges related to how scalable it is, the number of transactions you can send per second. And there are challenges related to its regulatory status in, in certain parts of the world. I see all of those problems getting kind of hammered out right now. Um, I see the new companies emerging to make this technology easier to acquire for people, easier to hold and understand and send. I see new solutions being built so that this technology can scale, so that these networks can scale. And I see regulators in the vast majority of, of countries in the world being open to the big ideas behind blockchain technology and the usage of blockchain and, and crypto assets over the longer term. So the exact timing of adoption is, is um, still an open question. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, but I see everything moving towards a world in which blockchain technology becomes pervasive. It does. The question is, is it governmental controlled or, or public controlled? Because if it's governmental controlled, then we get into a situation where at least with cash, you have some, some privacy. As we get into more and more digital money, you get into more and more censor, or not censorship, but surveillance, so to speak. Does that worry you? So I would say that the prospect of a digital currency, blockchain-based or not, in fact, blockchain really doesn't have much meaning in the context of, of a currency that is controlled by one entity, but a digital currency that is issued by countries that have a strong, a strong interest in limiting individual privacy and censorship is very concerning. It's sort of antithetical to all of the exciting ideas behind blockchain-based cryptocurrencies. So if, if a country that has a totalitarian bent were to issue a form of digital money that everybody depended upon and that they could then track and control, they would literally be able to shut off the money of individuals that they didn't like or agree with. It would actually provide governments with a totally new form of control and power, the likes of which we really haven't seen before. Already, you know, governments are, are able to control how individuals are able to use money through the banking system indirectly, but this, this would um, provide them with much greater levels of visibility into everything that every individual is doing, and it could really be quite dangerous for individual privacy and, and, and freedom. Isn't it almost inevitable that governments will try something like this? Because governments, inherently the people within government, their motivations are to grow the aspects of government, to have better control over the population, to make things more stable, so to speak. But all of those lead to minority report type scenarios. The US and China specifically, 
China, the more obvious side, the US, well, the NSA is spying on Americans more than anyone else. Do you, do you think that that's something that we need to be worried about with regulations and as things are moving along? So I think it's very likely that countries with a totalitarian bent will try this and move towards this. Um, I think that is part of the reason that it's so important that technology that gets built that enables people to exist outside of those countries in, in a, economically. I think that countries like the U.S., it's not necessarily inevitable that we'll move towards a system where a government-backed digital currency is the only form of money and, and the government has complete visibility into everybody's spending and savings. You know, I think here, freedom is a, is a core value <laughs> and there's all sorts of checks and balances, including our ability to elect politicians and, and the constitution that, you know, might make that that makes that scenario less likely in, in places like Europe, individual privacy is paramount. So I do think these things will get experimented with all over the world, but we won't see them everywhere. How does GDPR affect cryptocurrencies growth? I know that a lot of the regulations in GDPR would affect a lot of businesses, but what about specifically blockchain companies? Mm, frankly, it's not something I'm an expert on. US-based, we have some companies in, in Europe, but it's not something I've dug in deeply. So there's probably somebody better to answer that question. Not a problem. What are the most exciting use cases or companies that you're seeing today? Yeah, so I, I'd say we're seeing three big trends. All are geared towards making this new asset class more accessible and more useful. So the first big trend that we're seeing on the venture side is new products and services and businesses to enable institutional investing in digital currencies. So those include new institutional grade exchanges, new trading platforms that you know both the traditional hedge fund managers are used to, new data tools, and critically, new custody solutions. Because today, the custody solutions that enable institutions to hold cryptocurrency are, are insufficient from a technical and a regulatory perspective. So that's that's been a huge trend this year. We've invested in a bunch of companies that fall into that category. It might seem kind of silly. I mean, custody, right? You put it under your pillow and it stays safe at night. The thing with cryptocurrency, it doesn't work like that. You've got this special key and anyone can access it. These are the hacks that we've seen. We've seen massive hacks in the crypto space, hundreds of millions of dollars being lost because you know what? When there is no physical vault and everything's online, all you need is a key and then you've got all of the time, all of the money because all you need is this private key, a private key that normally you would keep in your pocket. But when it's digital, you can be compromised. Quite a few more ways. We've seen a lot of hack both in consumer internet companies and in the crypto space. And this is something that's incredibly important because when money is quite literally digital, every single hack, it's not just your privacy that Facebook or Equifax is giving away. It's it's also your money. And that's a, that's a big problem. That's why custody comes into the equation. It's not like owning a stock certificate. You have to own something that is very easy to lose, very hard to track, and very valuable. Another interesting trend is around scalability. So Bitcoin is is and has done a terrific job of being this digital store of value, a new form of digital gold. And it, it works quite well, but it does a limited number of transactions per second. And there's some really interesting work being done around creating what are known as second layer scaling solutions, things like Lightning Networks, to enable people to transfer Bitcoin, basically not directly on the Bitcoin network, but by reference to the Bitcoin network, thereby relying on the security of the Bitcoin network, but not being limited 
by the Bitcoin network's technical characteristics, which make it relatively slow um, and low throughput. So there's a lot of work around that. There's also some new networks that are coming out that are seeking at a, at a base layer to create platforms that have faster and cheaper and higher throughput payments. So those are things like Hashgraph, and we invested in a project called Logos, and and um, you know there there's um, Ethereum certainly has a scaling roadmap of its own. But that's been a big trend. Another trend is around what I would call stability. So one you know a lot of the big ideas around Bitcoin related to payments, um, they they work well, but they some of them are challenged due to Bitcoin's volatility. So one possibility is that the way that all these big ideas around cryptocurrency come to fruition is through a price-stable cryptocurrency. Basically, a, a cryptocurrency that lives on the blockchain, that supply of which is not directly controlled by any government, um, but which is pegged to a fiat currency. And so uh, something like this could, could potentially be, um, you know, be, work really well. And so we've invested in a bunch of projects on this front. Warning, warning. Travis is one of the top guys at a leading $100 million plus crypto VC. He sees the best of the best and has really good access to opportunities when it comes as an investor. And you know what? He's about to drop some really interesting investment knowledge. Hopefully this is helpful. Again, we and Travis aren't liable, but we hope that this helps you in the future. Enjoy. So I want to jump back to something that you were talking about earlier. And before we do that, I realized Let's define blockchain for people that aren't familiar. What is a blockchain? How is the technology new and why does it matter? Yeah, so a blockchain is a distributed ledger that allows a disparate group of individuals or institutions who may or may not trust each other to record transactions and to reach consensus about the order of those transactions without reliance on any single intermediary. So what Bitcoin enables is pure peer-to-peer -peer payments that do not depend on a central intermediary telling you that you can send that money. So if I were to send you one Bitcoin, uh, that transaction would get broadcast to the network of Bitcoin nodes. Those nodes would, using algorithms, validate and propagate that transactional data, confirm that that transaction was valid, that I had the Bitcoin I was sending you, and put that transaction into what's known as a block of transactions, which then gets added to a chain of blocks. When I send that transaction, what I'm not doing is asking my bank to send money to your bank, which then holds the money for us. It's a pseudonymous transaction, so the nodes in the network are able to check that my account has the Bitcoin that I say I'm going to send, but they don't know who controls the account and they don't care. All they care is that I have the money that I say I want to send. And so the big idea behind Bitcoin and blockchain is these peer-to-peer -peer transactions that do not depend on central inter intermediaries. Which is incredibly important if you want to get your money out of somewhere, if things go terribly wrong, or just the fact that you don't control your money can always lead to problems a la Greece and the banks and government just increasing taxes randomly to pay for bad government. Totally. And, and the friction of today's banking sector limits people's usage of money in, in a bunch the, of different the ways. Banks cruise you more um, than anyone so else. It's, it's, yeah, I would, say, I would say banks have to be pretty high up there in one of the most hated industries because they're so highly regulated and there's so few, there's so few choices. 
I think it's very interesting trying to reinvent the aspect of money, but I think it's also very interesting some of the other things that come into play with cryptocurrency, specifically utility type tokens and security type tokens. So things that can incentivize usage and things that can obviously replace stocks because stocks are incredibly inefficient. What areas are, what specific area are you most excited about though and why? Yeah. So I think that, I think one area that's quite hot right now that is pretty interesting or what are known as these non-fungible tokens. So what Bitcoin is, is it's a, it's a fungible digital token, meaning one Bitcoin is worth the same as another Bitcoin, and it's, it's provably scarce. We know that only 21 million Bitcoin will ever be created. What people are able to do now using, using these networks and, and mostly on Ethereum today is to create these non-fungible tokens that are provably scarce assets that are distinguished from other assets. So the first application of this that we saw get mainstream adoption to some extent was CryptoKitties. Each cat, each digital cat that they created was separate and distinct from every other cat. And so there's a whole host of exciting companies that are being built now to create and issue non-fungible tokens on the basis that this provable scarcity and this ability to own and transfer digital assets will create huge businesses of some sort. So one project that we're big backers of that I love is called Decentraland. And so this one's a little off the beaten path, but I think it it can explain this concept of digital scarcity pretty well. So what Decentraland is doing is they're trying to create a virtual world, kind of like the Oasis in Ready Player One for anybody who's seen that, where with a ownership of the land in that world recorded as non-fungible tokens on the Ethereum blockchain. So the big idea is it's going to be a metaverse that people are able to enter either through a web browser or eventually in VR. And they're going to be able to travel around this world and engage in all sorts of experiences and build things and play games and, and you know take classes. But the size of the world is kind of artificially scarce in the way that Bitcoin is artificially scarce. There are only 90,000 parcels of land. Each parcel has separate coordinates on a grid, and the ownership of these parcels is recorded on Ethereum. These are Each parcel is a separate non-fungible token. And so people who believe that this world is going to get developed in the way that a city gets developed, they can buy the land and they can build whatever they want on it. And the land is, is scarce. And so if you think there's going to be traffic in this world and that people are going to want to own land in this world, they buy these non-fungible tokens today. There's a whole host of other exciting examples of non-fungibles, but that's an area that you know, we've been spending a lot of time and making some investments this year. How do you think about the difference between existing industries? So for instance, tokenizing real estate, tokenizing music. I mean, Napster killed music, artists got screwed, and now streaming services, basically the same. They get paid very little versus being able to sell original content. And then something like Decentraland, which is creating something totally new. How do you think about the opportunity sets for both of those? So it's a great question. I think that we will end up seeing more big applications and things that are totally new. The reason being, it's hard to use blockchain to create a, a sufficiently, a, a, an equal or better user experience today as more centralized databases. So if you're trying to just create, you know, a Spotify where every song is recorded 
on the blockchain and, and the royalties flow through using blockchain-based smart contracts, that's really cool in theory, but because the technology is relatively nascent, it would be extremely challenging to match or exceed the Spotify user experience. And I think it's going to be a while until the developer tools are in place such that one could build something like that that's good enough to gain mass adoption. However, where you move into entirely new markets, things that don't really exist today, where there is not an incumbent who has completely nailed the distribution game and the user experience, and where the blockchain is increasing the value proposition to end users, as with Decentraland, where you have this land that people can own and store and transfer, then I think you have the possibility of creating really big new businesses. What about something like a Brave or a utility token trying to incentivize, for instance, replacing a Facebook? I know you said it's not going to have the same type of user experience, but when do you think that could be possible? Do you think that's possible? And do you think the inherent network effects of monetizing usage or paying people to be players is eventually something that could overthrow some of the tech giants? Yeah, so I think I think that utility tokens are interesting. We are in the super early days of these things. I think you know some of the more interesting things that are getting built today are really protocols, so things like Filecoin. I think you know one big open question today is on their regulatory status. So these things basically need to be treated as commodities or it's going to be very challenging for people to actually use them, at least here in the US. I think that you know, the big ideas make a ton of sense. So it's it's an area that we're interested in. We've, we've made a bunch of investments. How do you think about ICOs, initial coin offerings, security token offerings versus tra- traditional venture capital and how that changes the ecosystem of raising money? Yeah, so there's there's been a ton of activity around ICOs in the last year and a half, but it's an area where we've been pretty conservative and where I've personally been pretty skeptical. I think that you know, there, there are a handful of exceptions where you have folks who are creating and launching new networks where you actually need to create a new token and creating a new token increases the prob- probability of success. But in the vast majority of instances, you know, these, these things are being created and sold potentially in violation of U.S. securities laws, which is a big problem. Or they don't really have the governance structures in place to align incentives to, you know, create a network where it's likely that the developers will actually follow through and build something that's really useful and interesting. And, you know, many of these things are being done at really crazy prices because there's been a little bit of a, a mania around them. So we've done, you know, we've done a, a, a few of these kind of legally compliant token sales, but ICOs is not an area that we've been super excited about. Yeah, there's been a lot of fear of missing out. Well, the way that government's designed, it's designed to be a damper and to run slower than the rest of the economy is moving so that it doesn't move too quickly and break things, so to speak. But with investing specifically in tech companies, in cryptocurrencies, et cetera, a lot of the regulations create a lot of challenges. If you were in charge of the SEC, what would you change today and why? So I think the SEC has been super thoughtful and has taken a, a, a really good approach to kind of regulating these things thus far, you know, it, it's, there's been some low hanging fruit, some real frauds and, and scams that they've gone after and prioritized, which is absolutely the right thing to do. Um, they, they, um, you know, certainly Chairman Clayton has made some remarks that, you know, if something is 
looks and, and acts like a security early on, it's going to be treated as a security, which I think is, is reasonable for them to say. I think that, you know, they, they seem to be moving somewhat slowly and taking some time to learn about, you know, how these tokens are going to evolve and how this market's going to be used. And, and uh, in the meantime, you know, the market has cleaned itself up to some extent. Um, most of the sales that are getting done today are Reg D compliant private placements to accredited investors only here in the US. And there aren't a lot of public crowd sales to unaccredited investors being done, which I think is, you know, the SEC's primary concern is making sure that people don't lose their their savings <laughs> on investing in things that they don't understand or being misled. And so you know, I think that the SEC's approach thus far has been really good. I think that if I had a magic wand, it's really up to Congress to create new rules. But I think that what we're dealing with here is a new asset class that has very different characteristics from traditional securities in many ways. You know, these utility coins um, in some ways act like securities early on, but over the longer term, they're going to act much more like commodities. And so a new framework needs to be put in place so that people who are developing this incredibly innovative, powerful new technology know what the rules are. I think that's really important for the competitiveness of the U.S. going forward and, and for the development of this technology. So I, you know, I don't expect that to happen super quickly. I think that you know, the SEC needs to be measured and, and take their time. But I think that's what's really important here. One of the things we like to talk about on Fringe FM is not just your specific industries, but the, the converging industries that play a, play a significant role. So what areas outside of blockchain are you most focused on and most affect your day-to-day? Huh. So we, um, as I mentioned, you know, we're really excited about Decentraland. And, and you know, Decentraland is kind of like this project Second Life, which was uh, a metaverse concept plus VR, plus crypto. And so we've started dabbling in and, and learning more about VR because I do think some of the, the cross applications of, of VR and crypto are going to be super interesting. I think that VR is kind of this natively digital world that people are going to inhabit and that cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology work really well in a natively digital world where you don't have kind of this, this friction of tying in the real world and, and uh, what, what people refer to as the last mile problem. So if I want to send you, you know, a payment in fiat internationally from here to, you know, anywhere in the world, I have to convert my U.S. dollars into Bitcoin and send that Bitcoin to, to you and you need to convert it back to your local currency. But if we're existing in a purely digital world where we can exchange that cryptocurrency for virtual goods, it works much more seamlessly. So VR is an area that that we've started learning more and gotten excited about. I certainly think over the longer term, there are going to be aspects of AI that, that affect every area of technology in life. And so certainly there's going to be some intersection between AI and the blockchain. There, there basically isn't any today, but you know, it's an area that, that I, I personally try and follow because I know that it's going gonna, it's gonna to have huge impacts on everything, blockchain and other. Especially considering the scale. And do you see a lot of manipulated trading? I know if you look at the stock market, it's basically 90% bots that are trading. Do you see something similar in the crypto space? I don't, but I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a venture capital investor. So I spend most of my time talking to early stage entrepreneurs who are building the future of finance and building incredibly innovative technologies that are going to transform people's lives. 
you know, most of the most of the people I see moving into the space are mission driven and incredibly intelligent and and kind of super excited about all the positive potential here. So you mentioned Ready Player One earlier. I imagine you've read the book or seen the movie. Yes, indeed, both. Do you think we're headed towards a, a similar type world? Do you think we're headed towards something different? And if so, how? Have you read Ready Player One or watched the movie? If not, you totally should. And by the way, because you're listening to this, we've got a special deal. Audible loves the podcast and is hooking up all our listeners with a free audiobook trial. If you go to fringe.fm slash audible, you can download Ready Player One or any other audiobook that you like. Free trial. Listen to it. You can cancel whenever you want and not have to pay any money whatsoever and yet get an incredible book. We recommend Ready Player One because it's relevant to this episode, but there's a, there's a ton of incredible books that we've recommended before. Abundance and Bold by Peter Diamantis. You could get Super Intelligence by Nick Bostrom. Any of these. You just go to fringe.fm slash audible and you can download any book you like. Enjoy it. Listen on your phone. Listen on your computer. I like to double speed them personally so I can listen a little bit faster. But then you get to experience, in this case, virtual reality. In my opinion, the best sci-fi book when it comes to dystopian VR and how it can affect humanity. Ready Player One. So again, that's fringe.fm slash audible. Just search Ready Player One, set up your trial and enjoy. So I think over the longer term that it's totally inevitable that something like the Oasis in Ready Player One, which is the virtual world that they inhabit, is going to become extremely popular. I think VR technology is early. Um, I think the hardware is imperfect. It's not that enjoyable to be in a headset for a long period of time today, but the hardware is going to get much better. AR is going to see pretty solid adoption, I think, over the next five years. But over the longer term, I think VR is going to win because it's much more immersive and much more emotionally powerful. And so I think that you're going to have these metaverses that people enter into that you can think of as new social platforms like Facebook and, and, and Instagram and Twitter. They're going to be places that people enter from their computers or from their headsets and that they go to interact with others and to have experiences. I, I, um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, I don't know what the timing is on that. I think that in 10 years, we'll certainly see some adoption on that front. The longer out, it's, it's inevitable that people are going to spend a ton of time in these worlds. Have you seen the Magic Leap demos? Um, I haven't, but I've, I've heard from people who have, and all of them have said it's mind blowing. There's some articles online now that walk you through it. It looks pretty spectacular. I think AR and VR will ultimately be merged. You can turn one or the other. It makes no sense to have two, two different types of headsets. But, but I can definitely see the VR implications with blockchain. Is Decentraland trying to build out a full e-commerce type system or just the, just the part and parcel kind of monopoly mix? Yeah, so life? so it's, it's, it's a platform. So, you know, they've created the world, but the world is community owned, as I mentioned. Anybody can buy or sell land in this world and own a parcel. And the ownership of that parcel is recorded on the blockchain. They hold it in their, their wallets. Um, and then it's up to the community to build experiences in the world. So any developer can, can buy a parcel and build anything they want. So people are building, you know, virtual concert venues and virtual casinos and, and universities and, and e-sports e, um, e arenas and, and basically anything that, that you can imagine. <laughs> 
And uh, so that's going to be a super exciting one to watch. What do you think the future is for platforms in a, in a blockchain type space? Do you see blockchain starting to take over more and more of the internet? Or do you believe there's going to be splits? Because I know with Facebook, with Google, there's some pretty solid platforms that make a, make a shit ton of money at the moment. But I know the vision of cryptocurrency is to cut out the middleman, so to speak. Yeah, I think, you know, what's critical is that the folks who are trying to disrupt these businesses can create user experiences that are good enough to actually move people over. I think, you know, with, with all the, the scandal around Facebook this year, people are understanding that having systems in place where individuals control their own data and can maintain their privacy is critically important. But at the end of the day, you know, whether you can actually get people to switch off of these things and, and to move beyond these these manipulative ad-based business models is, is going to depend on whether companies building new products and services and experiences on top of blockchain can create really compelling user experiences. If they can't, you know, these companies are not going to be disrupted. But if, uh, if, if they can, they're certainly at risk. Yeah, free money for signups is a pretty solid incentive, much more so than free coupons for signups. But what, uh, what I wanted to talk about now so you're in this day-to-day, -day, you're in the trenches. What's it like working in the crypto space? And I imagine your family knows you do this. And every time Bitcoin goes up and down, they're like, oh, how are you doing? Ha. So those of us who have been in the industry for a long time and who believe in the long-term potential here don't spend a lot of time looking at the short-term fluctuations in price because they don't necessarily track what's really happening behind the scenes. I mean, this year, I would say the fundamentals have gotten just an order of magnitude stronger. I really feel like there are 10 times as many great entrepreneurs moving into the space in the last 12 months as compared to the previous 12 months. There's way more smart venture capitalists who are eager to put money to work and help folks build amazing companies. There's, there's you know, more open-minded regulators who want to learn about what this is and how it can positively impact society and, and how they should treat it. So, you know, the, we, we really do a good job of kind of tuning out the noise here, staying long-term focused. Um, but working in the industry, there certainly is a lot of noise and excitement. <laughs> and you, you really learn to just kind of ride the waves. Entrepreneurship is a roller coaster and investing is as well. If you had to put all of your money into two different assets, they don't have to be crypto. What two would you choose and why? And let's say you had to hold it there for 20 years. Hey, Matt here. So stable coins, why does it matter? Well, let's say you just got paid and you make what? 500 bucks a week, a thousand bucks a week, 2000 bucks a week, whatever it is. Well, if your 2000 bucks a week buys you your rent, I don't know, your medicine for your dogs, all your food, a nice little vacation. And next week you can't pay rent because the money's not very stable, i.e. you have hyperinflation or deflation where your money is constantly changing. That becomes a really, really traumatic situation if your money's constantly changing or constantly losing value. You spend it as quickly as you can, which is what's currently happening now in Venezuela and other hyperinflation countries. But to be able to have some type of consistency in your life, you need to know how much money you're making week in and week out. It's not like your hours are changing. It's just your money is going further or less far. This has been a huge problem with Bitcoin with massive spikes and massive drops in the value. Sure, one day your Bitcoin may be worth 18,000, but if it's worth 6,000 the next day and suddenly 
your mortgage is due, you could find yourself screwed if you bought a nice house. This is why stable coins are so important because if we're able to create stable coins in the future, ones that would, for practical purposes, let's say one that functions a lot like the US dollar. Well, suddenly you have a digital currency. If you can make it so it's not in control by government, that's great. But then it's also something that's relatively stable. So people are able to use this to conduct in commerce. If you have something that's very volatile, like Bitcoin, no one wants to spend their Bitcoin because the value may go way up or maybe the value is going way down. Either way, there's major, major problems and you're either in incentivized to spend it as quickly as possible or to hold on to it for as long as possible. Neither situation works very well for a functioning economy. Oh, um, two assets outside of crypto? It can be anything. It can be crypto if you like as well. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I'm a big believer in Bitcoin, so I certainly would, would, uh, would put a lot of money in Bitcoin. You know, the other thing that I would, I would probably look at if, um, if I had the time is making some interesting investments, long-term investments in real estate. So, you know, another huge trend in technology right now is autonomous driving. Um, and I think in, within 20 years, we're not going to be driving ourselves. And what that means is we're going to have much less traffic and people are going to be able to commute without having to drive much more seamlessly. And so what that's going to mean is that our cities are going to get completely reshaped where people want to live or where it's convenient to live is going to change. So, you know, I don't know specifically what that means. And it might be a touch early to start making some investments based on that. But I think, you know, smart long-term real estate investors should be thinking long and hard about how autonomous driving is going to affect this industry. Definitely. How do you look to investors in other industries to influence your own investment decisions? Hmm, it's, it's a great question. You know, I love to, I, I, in my job, I spend a lot of time with other venture capital investors. You know, we've invested in over a hundred blockchain companies. We've co-invested with hundreds and hundreds of, of venture capital funds and basically all the top ones in every nook and cranny of the world. And so I love to I love to ask them how they're viewing the space because they're more generalist. And so um, it gives me kind of a, a read on, you know, how much, I guess, where we're at in the hype cycle. A lot of the time I get most excited when folks outside of the space are most pessimistic in some ways. Um, I actually think that, you know, folks who have, who are, who are less into this, when they get super, super excited about everything that's happening, they tend to be a little bit off the mark. When more folks are kind of level-headed about what's happening, I think that's when there are better investment opportunities. So that is, that is certainly one thing that, that I kind of look at. Um, and I think we're entering a period of, of, of a little less excitement on the venture side right now. Definitely. We've had a high for so long, then you, it, must, it must start to drop down outside. Of- yeah. In, in the crypto space, I think, you know, there was a little bit of a lag on the venture side where prices peaked in December and then venture capitalists started putting money to work and there were just a ton of new companies that got seeded or funded in the first six months of the year. But it's, it's slowed down a little bit, which I think means there's going to be better opportunities. Can you talk about the nature of open source and how it evolves? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the open source nature of, of blockchain-based networks is kind of critical to what they are. What it means is that anybody can, can copy the networks that's out there and create a new version that has a few tweaks. So those are, those are known as forks in the, in the blockchain community. So, you know, you have Ethereum and you have Ethereum Classic. You have Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and then 10 other, probably 100 other versions of Bitcoin at this point. So what, you know, the open source nature of this technology has led to is one, trust because everybody can review the code and 
and uh, you know, people are welcome to become part of different developer communities. But two, it's led to a tremendous amount of innovation because people can copy it and try and build better networks and better products on top. So I think the open nature of this technology is is uh, has been absolutely critical to it. Um, one interesting counterexample is a new network called Hashgraph that we're actually investors in, which is creating a distributed ledger network that's technically not a blockchain, but it's a payments network. It's called a DAG. It's um, and so they actually um, are not initially open sourcing the code behind their new consensus algorithm because their concern is that you know they don't they don't want to lose control of the code and the network. They also don't want people forking the technology that they've built. And their thinking is you know that that forks in the blockchain space have not necessarily been a good thing. So this is a topic that people have debated. I'm inclined to think that, you know, the possibility of forks and the existence of forks actually is good because it allows people to kind of splinter off and work on what they believe in um, and it creates competition. But, you know, there's a there's a reasonable argument to be made that forks actually create confusion and a lack of stability. And so Hashgraph wants to create a network that is faster, higher throughput, but also not forkable. Um, and so we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. So with that, how do you think about the dynamics associated with traditionally value has been in a business and there's equity in the business and the business goes up, the business goes down, you win, you make money. Now it's much more of a, a popularity game, so to speak, where people believe there's value or where they put their, you put your money where your mouth is and wherever you have the most money and mouths is where there's actually money. So I, I think that's a value, that's a function of the stage that we're at. I think, um, and certainly, you know, what people are excited about today will affect where developers build products and services and, and tools. But over the longer term, it's going to be the networks that have the most buy-in, but also that have the most utility that thrive and go up in value. So, you know, for example, today, Ethereum has a, a tremendous amount of developer support. Um, there are thousands and thousands of developers who have built things on Ethereum and these other competing smart contract platforms have a tiny fraction of that. But Ethereum is not scaling today. It really doesn't work well today because it's limited in the number of transactions per second that people can do. It also is hard to write very secure smart contracts on because of the type of programming languages that it uses, Solidity. So it's, it's easy for developers to write code on Ethereum, but it's also easy to write code that has bugs in it and leads to the loss of value. So we saw that with the DAO, we saw that with the parity bug earlier this year. In each case, over $100 million of, of Ether was at stake. And so Ethereum has the most support, buy-in, biggest developer community today, most recognition amongst cryptocurrency investors. It's not working that well. There are a bunch of other smart contract platforms coming to market to challenge it, and they might succeed. You know, they might, they might um, you know, if, they're, if, if folks are able to build the mission-critical applications that they want to build on these other platforms, it, it could take a ton of the market share from Ethereum. So it's, it's not just going to be about kind of early popularity. It's going to be about which networks function the best. One of the biggest problems I see is not just which networks function the best, but which have the proper incentive structure set up long term. So for instance, with a startup, 
you're, you start a business and you're going to end up doing something completely different for someone else completely different in a longer time frame than you ever guessed. And it, it, things just change and everything, as we said before, entrepreneurship's a roller coaster and it all goes to shit. Well, how do you plan it all ahead of time when you have to write a white paper and design an algorithmic based system that's supposed to survive inevitably? What, what do you see here? And does that worry you at all? Yeah. So what this gets to is, is governance. How are these networks governed? Which will determine how can they evolve? How can they be iterated upon? And so something like Bitcoin has decentralized governance. There's basically no single group of stakeholders that can change how the Bitcoin network functions. And that works really well for Bitcoin, which derives its value from being super stable, super secure, super hard to change. Some of these other networks have more centralized governance. So Ethereum is governed by the Ethereum Foundation and, and you know, Vitalik and, and some of the early developers. And they, you know, they have the ability to make upgrades to the Ethereum network, but, you know, it requires them to convince everybody to come along, which they basically can today. Um, so they are able to iterate. Some of these other networks, you know, they really have been launched by teams and they don't even have communities behind them. Um, and so they can, they can certainly force through hard forks and changes to the networks as they please in the meantime. You know, and some of these networks are trying to bake governance into their protocol so that different groups of stakeholders can vote on how things evolve. So actually, Decentraland's a pretty interesting example of this. So it uses the blockchain in a few ways. I really only mentioned one before, which was recording virtual land ownership. It also has a native cryptocurrency called Mana, but it also has, or it's going to have decentralized governance. So effectively, the Mana holders and or the landowners and or the participants in the decentralized ecosystem will be able to vote on what the rules are which might mean what are the zoning regulations in this virtual world? Or, you know, what are some of the laws What are for behavior in this virtual world? And so the project will evolve based on votes by the stakeholders. So that's kind of a, a possibility too in this blockchain ecosystem. It's super early. You know, they're, they're working with a project called Aragon that is trying to create tools and a protocol for decentralized governance that will basically make it possible for token holders to vote on the future and evolution of their projects. How do you see this affecting the future of real world governments? So moving fast, breaking things and evolving is very valuable because you're able to get to optimum solutions better. And that's what governments are, are god awful at. They move incredibly slow, typically don't test and rarely improve. How can, how, can the, how can the lessons learned from blockchain be applied to real world governance to lead towards a better, more, more seamless world? Well, this is this is outside of my area of expertise, but I'll tell you that, you know, one of the blockchain applications that's been talked about for years that that I love is is blockchain based voting, um, which when done in conjunction with mobile voting can basically enhance democracy tremendously. So, you know, we um, we uh, we've done a lot of work with and co-invested with um, a fund here in New York called Tusk Ventures, which is by a guy named Bradley Tusk, who's, you know, been been uh, politically active for his career. He, he was a politician and he worked with a bunch of politicians. And this is one of the causes that he's super excited about, basically letting people vote on their mobile devices and recording those votes on a blockchain so that those votes are immutable, cannot be changed, cannot be hacked, and thereby increasing participation in our representative democracy here. So 
you know, if you, if you move to a system like that, you can use it not just for electing officials, but also maybe for, I don't know, all sorts of stuff. Um, I, 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 I doubt that, uh, you know, these ideas will have a big impact on governments around the world in the short term, but maybe over the longer term. I know U.S., some of the, a large number of the voting machines you can hack with two minutes and a ballpoint pen. Uh, if you Google this, you'll, you'll see it. It's, it's horrifying. But yeah, a lot of old world technology is not doing a great job keeping up with new world demands. So I want to I want to transition a little bit now into into the future. So if you were a student today, what would you study and why? <laughs> I think students should study what they're interested in. I wouldn't prescribe what any individual should study. I mean, I, I studied finance and then law and learned about other topics I was personally interested in along the way. I think that's probably a pretty good that's probably a pretty good formula. Follow your passion and bust your butt and you'll get somewhere good. Any uh any bigger bold predictions about the future, things that you haven't heard frequently? Big bold predictions about the future. I mean, look, you know, we're we're here to talk about blockchain and cryptocurrency. I think that there's no question in my mind that this technology is going to be totally pervasive 10 years out. A lot of people get really focused on the short-term price fluctuations because they have funds speculating on these super volatile, risky assets. And I get that that can be fun, but I can tell you as somebody who's on the front lines here, you know, the influx of, of talent and brain power into this industry has been extraordinary to watch over the last couple years. You know, the things that are starting to happen at big institutions that really have the ability to move the needle here is really exciting. And so even though we're in a little bit of a bear market here. I kind of have no doubt that that all the infrastructure is being built such that this technology is going to transform our financial system over the coming decades. And and so it's a super exciting time to be part of this. At least I would hope it would transform the financial system. Otherwise, something went terribly wrong. What uh, If you had to leave people with something, a quote, an action statement, something of that nature, what would it be and why? <laughs> Buy Bitcoin. Buy Bitcoin. I like it. Very, very straight, short, and, and to the point. Travis, where's the best place for people to find you online? And thank you for being awesome. Yeah, sure. I'm on Twitter. Travis Share. My name. Easy to find. Awesome. Thanks for coming on today, Travis. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks and a thanks lot, Thanks for Matt. tuning in, guys. Have a, have a great day. We believe credibility is king. You may have noticed that Fringe FM, unlike most other podcasts, isn't filled with three minutes of ads at the beginning and end of every episode for comfy mattresses, better hiring or conferencing software, or robotic doorbells. And that's not that advertisers haven't asked. The thing is, if we tried to sell you on buying our advertisers' products, that would require deception and a level of misalignment and lack of open transparency and trust that we think podcasting in this medium necessitates. Would you trust someone who turned around and tried to sell you shit? We wouldn't. The online ads-based ecosystem is killing our political and societal world. We're used to getting something for nothing and are thus stuck in a clickbaity society of Trumpian tweets focused on extracting attention and avoiding the real meaningful issues and conversations. To fix this, we need to start paying for things that we value. Otherwise, it's all BuzzFeed from here on out. So before you go, if you like Fringe FM and believe our mission to be important, consider making a tax-deductible donation. Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a registered 501c3 nonprofit focused on advancing science worldwide. That means you can write off your donation for tax purposes and possibly even get your employer to match the donation, all of which would drastically boost the level of good that we can do in the world and the quality of show we can produce. To learn more about supporting Fringe FM and whether your gift would qualify to reduce your taxes, please visit fringe.fm give for more information. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm. 
where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.